This morning's not going to be a typical uh, message, especially for those of you that are uh, maybe visiting and wouldn't recognize that. Normally we have a sermon, sometimes a topic, usually just a passage to go through. But what I'm going to do this morning is uh, the first part of the time, I'm going to share where we are the, uh, in the, our project to translate the New Testament into the Finney language. I'll give an update there in, in, uh, in where we're going. And uh, because we're getting near the end and are thinking about finishing this translation project, I want to address the issue of what we're hoping the Finney folks will do with the New Testament once they have it in their own language. But as we think about that, that raises the question of what should we be doing with the Scripture? And that's actually where we're going to end up. So to begin with, with a report on the Finney New Testament translation project, if you'll recall, uh, for several years now I've been working with the New Ireland Translation Institute and there's, we actually started with 11 different tribal languages that we were translating the New Testament, all these different languages. There's a bunch of us working there. Over the years now, uh, five of those 11 have been finished. Four are printed, distributed, and one of them is at the printers in, in Korea. I think it's where it's being printed right now. Next year we'll have the, the dedication. This is a bunch of us. I think this picture is actually from three or four months ago. Um, and... Although um, there are several language groups involved, we, it's all in this area, New Ireland province of Papua New Guinea is all of these islands up here. That's the island of New Ireland. We, we meet together in a little village near this town of Namatanai. But the Finney folks that I actually mainly work with, the Finney language, they live on these two little tiny islands out here that uh, you probably don't have a map that has those islands on it. And the Finney folks know that. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, these are the guys that I normally work with and been working work, work, working with for years, um, working through the New Testament. And I want to show you where we're at now. Oh, well, this is what we do. When I go to Papua New Guinea, I go for a month, twice a year, and have been doing that for about 12 years now. And this is what I do several hours a day, five days a week for four weeks, is we just sit and we work. And we average about 25 verses a day. Not much glamour involved. It's just work. Uh, but this is where we are. All the green is stuff that's finished. And you have a similar, you have a version of this chart on the back of your bulletin insert. Um, the green is done. The gray is what's left to do. The yellow is where we're in, in the middle of a book. And I'm not going to explain all the steps in that. It would take about two hours, and I've done that before. But the main thing I want to point out here is, is uh, for several years now, we've had the whole thing in first draft. But the main thing, Part of translating is when I sit at the table with those guys, like in that picture, that's this thing right here. That's when I sit down with them in their first draft and we just grind through it verse by verse. And between their expertise and their own language and my biblical studies and, tra- and linguistic training, we work on getting a translation that's, that's faithful and readable. And the thing I want to point out is where we are now is all we've got left to do is finish 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Revelation and we'll essentially be done. And based on the rate that we've been going in the past, um, you're about to see something that until this morning hasn't been seen. And it wasn't until this last trip uh, three months ago was the first time the guys and I sat down and actually with pencil on paper projected a finished date. 
And so here's what we're looking at. Uh, I adapted this from a printout I made for them, and I took a bunch of stuff off. I'm not going to explain it all. Some of it's English, some of it's Finney. But the point is this. I'm about to go uh, a little less than four weeks. I'll go back for another month. And I think we will finish 2 Corinthians and do Galatians and start on Revelation. And then when I go back April of next year, we should pretty easily, about halfway through the session, finish Revelation. We should essentially be done with the translation. (coughs) Now, finishing the translation is kind of like when you build a house. When you're 90% done, you've got 90% left to do, right? So when we get to that point, it will probably still take us about another year uh, to do things like book introductions, glossary, captions to pictures. Then we'll just, when we get everything lined out, then we'll just read through the whole New Testament again. Uh, There's a lot of spelling decisions we still need to make. The language hadn't been written before, so even like the word nowhere. Is that one word or two words? Well, we've got a lot of those in Finney, you know, and... We're having to make all those decision, uh, spelling decisions, things like that. And we've changed, we've changed our spelling of a lot of things since we started 10 years ago. So we, gotta, we, want to, <laughs> we want things to be spelled the same through the whole. Do all that read through. So the point is these things highlighted at the bottom is I think it's realistic, Lord willing, the early in 2021 to send it off for typesetting. It'll take a couple of months to get it typeset. Then we'll get a couple of proof copies, and we'll meet again later in 2021, and we'll take about a month to read through the proof and hopefully not have many things to change. Um, And at that point, send, get the typesetting corrections made, and Lord willing, end of 2021, send it to the printers. Now, unfortunately, sending it to the printers, it'll probably be eight to ten months to get the thing printed, bound, and shipped back to Anir. But we're looking possibly um, late 2022, having the Finney New Testament finished, printed, and delivered. I put down here dedication in the highlighted Generally, anywhere Wycliffe Bible Translators works, uh, and certainly with the New Ireland Translation Institute, generally when a New Testament is finished uh, and they're introduced into the language area, they'll, the churches will get together and have a huge celebration. It's partly celebration, it's partly dedication, partly just thanks to the Lord. And so this last session when I was there in uh, April and May, in fact, we had the dedication for one of the language groups that had already finished. It's the Condos group. They're down here along the coast. So one weekend, all of us nitty guys, we all piled up in a truck, and we crossed the island and got on boats, and we traveled about three hours down the coast. There aren't any roads down there to the villages there. And all the villages in that language group, they all got together one day in the uh, people from the different churches and different denominations, they all got together and they had a devotion. And just kind of as a motivation, I've got a couple of 15-second um, video clips from the Condos dedication that we'll watch. And I'll show, um, this is a couple of the Nitti guys, the, they're from two other languages. They're carrying one of the New Testaments. This is all of us. A nitty guys from the other language groups, and I'm one of the white guys in a hat back there. Uh, and then this 
singing group is from one of the churches. They're in the Kondos group. Initially, when they're singing, they're actually singing in their own language, but later they'll just be singing hallelujah. Um, this guy here, Bruno, he was actually one of the main translators in the Kondas language, a super, super brother. Well, that was really encouraging. We uh, we had a good time time there. It was pretty exciting. The Finney guys, especially, were taking all kinds of notes because we're uh, even when the Finney completion and dedication was five years off. Oscar, especially, was, each time we go to a dedication, he'd take notes. I like the way they did this. I don't like the way they did that. In Finney, we're going to do this, and uh, they did the same thing here, taking all kinds of notes. But as we get close to getting done, it raises the question, when the Finney New Testament is completed in their language and they have it, what do we want them to do with it? And I've got that on your bulletin insert. It may sound like a silly question, but if you notice, I put down on there that to say we want them to read it is an unacceptable answer. Maybe I should put it's an, um, it's an insufficient answer. Because it's too vague. It's too vague. What does that mean to read something? Well, what I did, you notice on the bulletin insert, I got three questions there to kind of help us think about what to do with the Scripture. And uh, last session, I had actually written those three questions up on the whiteboard, and I wrote them in Finney. And I told the Finney guys, be thinking about these questions, and we'll talk about it in a couple of days. So a couple of days later... Finally, one of the Finney guys said, David, I've been, I've been studying your questions. And he said, I just don't understand the questions. Well, I felt bad. I thought it's because my Finney grammar was so bad they couldn't read it. But finally, no, I, my Finney was all right. I mean, he's a little cranky, but it was, it was all right. They just didn't understand the question. And I think that probably most Americans that see those don't understand the question. But if I talk about it in a minute, it will be clear. And here's what I mean. I've got some different kinds of literature here. I want to ask a question. This is a novel. What do you do with a novel? What did the writer think you were going to do with it? What does it mean to read a novel? This is a dictionary. What do you do with a dictionary? What did the writers think you would do with it? Probably not the same thing you would do with a novel. You could, but it would be painful. (laughs) This is a college textbook. How do you use a college textbook? What do you do with it? I've been waiting all morning for that to happen. (laughs) This is a collection of short stories. 
What do you do with a collection of short stories? Is reading this the same thing as reading a novel? Would you necessarily do it the same way? This is a hymn book. What do you do with a hymn book? How do you use it? This is a history book. How do you use a history? How do you read a history book? What do you do with it? It's my favorite. This is a cookbook. I've got more cookbooks than I have linguistic books. What do you do with a cookbook? What did what did Matter Jeffrey think people would do with this book? I suppose you could do word studies and outline the, uh, the grammar of the sentences and never actually cook anything, but I don't think that's what she expected you to do with it. Sorry for the crunching. I'm trying to save my throat here. This is a letter. What do you do with a letter? This is a letter that one of my mother's distant cousins wrote to her about 25 years ago. My mother, they'd been out of touch for a while, and my mother had written her a letter. And so she wrote about a five-page letter back to my mother. And uh, what do you think Merle expected my mother to do with this letter? Well... That's actually the reason for the verse at the top of your bulletin. Um, That looks kind of odd compared to the verses that are normally at the top of the bulletin. Uh, In fact, when I gave the information to the secretaries for printing the bulletin, the secretary actually said, is that right? (laughs) I said, yeah. Well, now you can see the connection. Because Paul put at the end of 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Thessalonians is what? It's a letter. It's a letter he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And by the way, that letter is much shorter than this one. We call it a book with three chapters, but it's not a little short letter. It's only two pages long. What did Paul want them to do with it? What does it say right there? Read it. I mean, it's kind of like, duh. Why don't we do that? You realize, okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is what we call the Bible. What is the Bible? And what are we supposed to do with it? Most of us know that it was written by quite a few people. The Lord worked through quite a few people. What did they expect us to do with it? Well, what I want to talk about this morning is the fact that Um, A little background here. We call this thing the Bible. I happen to have mine in two parts. This is what unfortunately is sometimes referred to as the Old Testament. And this unfortunately sometimes referred to as the New Testament. But the Bible um, comes from a Greek word that you'll probably see people say it means book, but it actually doesn't. Bible just means any written document. Um, and the Bible basically is a bunch of a bunch of pieces of literature that are all just for convenience bound together in one book, but it's made up of several different kinds of literature. It's got letters in it. It's got songs. It's got a hymn book in it. Uh, it's got historical books. Uh, it's got some wisdom literature, proverbs. It's got a lot of different kind of things in it. 
But what I'm going to, um, the main thrust of my message this morning and my encouragement to us, even though i got three different illustrations, they're all the same point. And that is that I think we should be reading the Bible the way the writers intended for us to read it. And I think what they intended for us to do, with the exception possibly of Psalms, which is a hymn book, and Proverbs, and I think you could make a case maybe for some of the longer prophets, that each one of the sections in the Bible, each book and each letter, was intended to be read in its entirety from front to back and taken as a whole. Individual books in the Bible are not like the dictionary where you just decide, oh, I'm going to look up a topic and I'm going to go look up somewhere that that word occurs. The writers intended for us to take what they've written, each each book, and just take it as a whole and let them tell us what they want to tell us. So I'm going to give some examples here uh, that I that you'll see on your um, your paper. And these are things that have just come up over the years that are actual situations where I've been talking to brothers and sisters in Christ where they were confused and misunderstood the Scripture because they were not reading it the way it was written. And this is really very simple. And all three of these came up as I was sharing with people that are full-time ministers. So let's take the first one here. Naomi and the Ruth story. Um, Not too long ago, Carrie and I were reading through a book together um, that was written by a a full-time pastor. And he was writing the book about a really difficult stage of life that he and his wife had gone through. They had had some real hardships. And he was writing about how the Lord brought them through that. But in there, he makes a, uh, a point. He kind of tries to make a lesson out of it. Carrie and I were reading together. And he made the statement, he, he gave uh, Naomi from the book of Ruth, he gave Naomi as an example of someone, he said, I think the way he worded it was, someone who never wavered in her faith in God to take care of her. And Carrie and I looked at each other and said, has he never read the book of Ruth? Well, what he did is he took this one verse out of context where in verse... Eight, you'll recall Naomi and her husband had moved to a foreign country and uh, her husband and both of her sons have died and now her two widowed daughters-in-law are with her and she's going to go back to Israel and they want to go with her. And she says, no, you guys stay here in your home country and I'll go back. In verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Now that sounds sweet. He put that verse in his book and said, See, Naomi's faith and God's trust in God's care never wavered. Is that right? Have you read the story? You know, what we learn is that Naomi, like most of us, we know the right Sunday school answer. But where are we really? Where are we really when our back's against the wall? Where are we when they're in the dark 
or in the shadows or we're talking to one person and we're not standing in front of the congregation trying to look good, where are we? They want to go with her. But she continues in verse 10 and in, in, in verse 11. But Naomi said, no, you go back. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my dear, my daughters. Go, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Now, if you don't know about their custom, I'm not going to get into that. It doesn't matter about Leverite marriage and all. But the point is here. She just said, let God care for you and find you husbands. But when they want to go with her, really, what is she saying? It's my responsibility and I can't do it. Why not? Look what she says. No, my daughters, it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Now, what we're going to do is she's saying, yeah, I know the Sunday school answer. The Lord will take care of you. But she says, don't go back with me. Look what God did to me. And if you go with me, he might do that to you. It gets worse. Her daughter-in-law, Orpah, agrees and she goes on home. But Ruth says, no, I want to go with you. Verse 15, Naomi says, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Do you hear what Naomi is saying? Don't come with me. Look what my God did to me. He'll do that to you. Maybe you'll have better luck with your gods. Ruth says, no. Your God will be my God. And she's commended later on for Ruth, the foreigner, is actually trusting God. Naomi's not. Well, I'm not going to teach the whole book of Ruth, but here's the point I want to make. Ruth, you know what? It's not real big. It's three pages. Can you read a three-page story? This book of short stories, they're all long. It's just three pages. You read what all happens in the story, how it develops, and we get to the end of the story. And at the end of the story, an amazing thing happens. Verse 14 Uh, we find now that Ruth has gotten married, Naomi has a grandson, things are set up. When the women, then the women said to Naomi, when they saw what happened in Naomi's life, their evaluation is, blessed is the Lord. Man, God has blessed you. He's not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be a restorer of life, sustainer of your old age. Now, he's referring to the grandson. We realize this has Messianic overtones too, but the point is, and also, they say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. Now, the point is, when you read the story, when you read the whole story, we see that Naomi starts out thinking God has kicked her when she's down. 
and you can't be trusted. But when the community sees how God works in her life, they're praising God for what he's done. Now, trick question at the end of the book of Ruth. What does Naomi think about God now? It's a trick question. It doesn't tell us. That happens in a lot of stories. A lot of the Old Testament, for example, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah ends with a question, doesn't it? God's asking Jonah, now what do you think? We don't know Jonah's answer. Often the Bible teaches us that way when he shows us things going on in people's life. And in the end, we don't actually know where they've ended up. And I think it's because God wants to ask us, what would you do? Where would you be if you were in Naomi's shoes? You know, I'd like to claim that I can identify with uh, post-Pentecostal Peter, not the pre-Pentecostal, but I'd like to think I could identify with the post-Pentecostal Peter, you know, bold and everything. But Naomi, I probably identify with Naomi more than anyone else in the Bible. Because you know what? It's been a long time I've known the Sunday school answers. But you know what? When life is hard, you're left with what you actually believe about God and whether you trust Him. That's the point of trials. And as we see in the book of Ruth, the Lord is showing us that, letting us see that in a person's life so we can look at our own life. Are we being like Naomi was at the beginning? Are we going to be like the ladies at the end of the story where we recognize, yes, God does care. Yes, Naomi is still a widow, and she still lost her two sons, and there's no denying that was hard. But can we trust the Lord anyway? The point is that God often uses stories, and I would say even in the historical books, the historical books of the Bible are not written the same way that our history books are. This is a history of the English-speaking peoples by Winston Churchill, which is kind of fun. But in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the historical books are normally not written like, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's the lesson. Normally, the history is written just in the form of a story, like what we would call a historical novel, except it's actually true, it's not made up. And the reason is, instead of explaining things, God just shows us what he's doing and how people are responding. And that involves reading the whole story. We'll see lots of contradictory uh, statements. In fact, I always like to shock people and tell them the Bible's full of lies. Well, what's happened is, of course, in the story, within the story, there are people telling lies. You know, it says in the Bible that you won't die if you sin. Well, of course, that's Genesis 3, and Satan said that, and he was lying. But you need to read the story to make sure you know who's talking and how it fits in that story. Uh, You can think about Jesus. Uh, What did Jesus do in teaching about saving faith? He didn't actually very often explain what saving faith is. What he did is he just went through life and interacted with people, and he would interact with them, and they would interact with him, and at some point he would turn to his disciples and say, did you see that? That's saving faith. And then he would go on and interact with people, and they would interact with him, and they would respond, and they'd argue with him, and he would say, did you see that? That's not saving faith. And he'd interact with someone else, and they would have their discussions, and they would respond, and Jesus would say, do you see that? 
That's saving faith. Never mind that that's a woman and a prostitute. That's saving faith. And the next time he interacts with a bunch of religious leaders who are polite company and they live in their gated communities and they're in the country club and and they're nice people, but he says, you know what, that's not saving faith. They're going to hell. And rather than analyze and explain, he just shows us. Even when he sits people down in the classroom, okay, everybody, sit down. All 5,000 of you, I'm up on the side of a hill. Everybody sit down. I want to teach you. What does he do? He mostly tells stories, parables. And he shows us what it's like. But to understand that, we need to read the whole story to get the point he's making and not fly down there and pick out one little piece and not understand how it fits. So that's uh, one of the first things I want to say is the parts of the Bible that God had people write in the form of stories, read them as stories and you need to read the whole story because the lesson is usually in the story as a whole and not in the little tiny pieces that we pick out of context. I'll give another example. From 1 Corinthians 14, this one isn't about stories, but this is, this is to show us in the, the fact that there are a lot of things that, that God wants to teach us, that He teaches us and tells us in the Bible, that involve pretty lengthy explanations. In other words, there are things that God wants us to know and understand that will not fit on a bumper sticker. And so you're just going to have to put your big boy pants on and be willing to read extended passages because that's the way they're written. I told Joe that I was going to pick on him. Uh, Joe's a pilot, um, flown a lot, and Joe could put a bumper sticker on his bumper that said, I'd rather be flying. And that would be a true statement. I think he'd probably rather be flying. But that's not enough information for you to go out and fly an airplane. If you're going to fly an airplane, there's some things you need to know. It's going to involve sitting down, turning your brain on, and thinking. Well, in fact, the Bible has things like that in it, where... Um, the Lord just wants to explain things. Now, I want to make a real point here. Um, I'm not talking about some of the kinds of things that professional theologians do. I got to go to seminary and got a master's degree and studied Greek and Hebrew and theology and all that stuff. And a bunch of the stuff that I had to read is stuff that theologians created where they pick little odds and ends of pieces out of things and, and they build these big theological constructs and then they argue about them and over the centuries they've excommunicated each other and burned each other to stake and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about places where it's actually the topic in the Bible, where the Lord has the writer just say, I want to teach you about something, and it's going to take a few paragraphs. Just let's work through this, and we need to be willing to do that. Um, This really came to mind some years ago, I was actually a, a teaching assistant in a, in a linguistic course, and the professor that I was, I was working under was a really smart lady. I learned a tremendous amount from her that, that helps me now. And she had been a Bible translator. She'd done a New Testament translation in South America, and then afterwards she got a Ph.D. in linguistics, and, and she taught. But one day we were just visiting, and she was talking about things in the Bible that just weren't understandable. She said, you just have to, you just can't understand it. And she gave us an example from 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. 
And then he clearly then, in effect, says, therefore, if there are unbelievers that come to your church meeting, don't speak in tongues. And she said, wait a minute, if it's a sign for unbelievers, why are you not supposed to do it? And she just threw up her hands and said, that's something you just can't understand. Well, my countenance fell when she said that. I should have said she was not inviting me for my opinion, so I didn't, I didn't try to help her with that. Turn to 1 Corinthians, please. Chapter 12, actually. Remember, 1 Corinthians is, one of, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It wasn't his first letter. We know he wrote at least one or some others. We just call it 1 Corinthians. He'd written some other letters to him, to them, and they'd written some letters to him. And in this letter, the first few pages, he, he addresses two particular problems they have in their church that had been reported to him. He just says that. So he addresses those. And then, beginning in chapter 7, he addresses several things about which they had written him. He says, now, concerning the things you wrote about to me, I want to address those. And he addresses several of them. He talks about celibacy and food sacrifice to idols and several different things. But one of them, uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, you'll notice it says, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, apparently this is one of the things. Now, concerning spiritual gifts... Now, chapter 12, 13, and 14, all three are part of this subject, this topic. It all goes together. What he's going to say about a sign to unbelievers is part of this section. And what he does in chapter 12 is he starts out reminding them that spiritual gifts are things that the Holy Spirit gives to each believer for us to use for what? We're to use it to help other people. In their walk in faith with the Lord. It's not something that we use to aggrandize ourselves in public and, and to make ourselves look good. That's not its use. We're to use them with an attitude of love to help one another. Look at the last couple of verses of chapter 12. It says, Not everybody has the gift of healing, do they? Not everybody speaks with tongues. Not everybody interprets. But earnestly desire the greatest gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. Now, if you've got white out, white out that chapter break. That's, that's a disaster there. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So starts chapter 13. Now, Paul did not write chapter 13. He didn't just pull that out of the air and throw it in there so that we could put it in greeting cards and read it at weddings. What this is, is he's talking about spiritual gifts and the attitude with which we should use our spiritual gifts and minister to one another. We shouldn't have an attitude of love. And this whole clanging symbol thing is he's alluding to speaking in tongues. So he goes through that and now look at the last verse of chapter 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And again, white out that chapter break. It goes right on. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially the ones that you may prophesy. So you see this whole love chapter is an integral part of teaching us about spiritual gifts. Okay, stay with me. Um, So what he's going to do in chapter 14, he's going to say, I'm going to give you an example. 
There's a gift of prophecy and a gift of speaking in tongues. Now, I'm not going to define prophecy here. We tend an hour, spend an hour talking about how Paul is using that word. But at the very least, I'm going to say that he's talking about speaking about the truth about God in a way that people can understand it. Speaking clearly, proclaiming and teaching God's word. And so what he's going to say, you want to do that so people can understand it. It helps them. If you speak in tongues, it doesn't help them. So he comes down, we run down to, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 21, actually. It says, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law it's written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, he's going to base this statement on that quote. So then, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And then when you read on down, he's going to pretty effectively say, therefore, don't speak in tongues if there's unbelievers there. Actually, he allows if there are interpreters there, it's all right if they're interpreters. But this is where she got hung up. If tongues is a sign for unbelievers then why shouldn't we be doing it when unbelievers are there? Well, he based it on that verse, that Old Testament verse. So I'm going to open it up. What does that Old Testament verse refer to? I'm going to give, if someone would like to have an opportunity to respond, here's your chance. If you don't, I'll tell you, but... While you're thinking about it, I'll comment on the fact I'm often amazed when I'm reading in the New Testament that even when the writers are writing to Gentiles, they seem to assume that their readers have a pretty good working knowledge of the Old Testament. They may have been optimistic. That quote comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 24. Sometimes I get 24 and 28 mixed up. It's... it's uh, 28, I'm sorry, Isaiah 28. And what that is, is Isaiah is prophesying against Ephraim, that is Israel. And he's reminding them that when God made the covenant with them in Mount Sinai, he told them, if you continue in rebellion and disobedience against me, I'm going to allow foreigners, the foreign nations, to come and decimate you and take you away as prisoners. And in Isaiah 28... That's what Isaiah is telling them. He's saying, Ephraim, you've been rebelling against God for a thousand years. God has had it up to here, and he's going to do just what he said he's going to do. He's going to send these stammering lips and, and the lip, stammering tongues and the lips of strangers. He's talking about foreigners who don't speak Hebrew, that speak a foreign language. They're going to come and they decimate you. They're going to kick you out because God has said... I am done. Get out. And Paul says, therefore, tongues are a sign to unbelievers. A sign of what? It's a sign of judgment and rejection and being separated from the blessings of God. But what do we do? We just parachute in and read that verse. Tongues are a sign to believers, uh, for unbelievers. What do we automatically think? We automatically think, oh, it's a sign to convince them of the truth. But that's not what Paul's talking about. And I would say that if you simply read the way Paul has read 
written it, and follow his argument. Follow his argument. And when there's quotes from the Old Testament, make sure you go back and see what that quote's actually about. And the point that the writer's making, then the meaning becomes clear. Now, we're not needing to learn this because we're going to have to pass a test. You know, it's not like when you get to the gates, Peter's going to give you a Bible trivia quiz. The point is, God is trying to instruct us with His Word and His love. And we want to understand clearly what God is wanting to tell us. And... And there are parts of the Bible that are written somewhat like a textbook in that there are extended lessons that you kind of need to learn part and build on that and build on that and build on that. If you're studying calculus, I'm telling you, don't start in chapter 12. You're going to crash and burn. If you're studying Romans, you're not going to understand chapter 5 if you don't know what Paul said in chapters 1 through 3. In fact, I remember when we were translating Romans with the Finney guys, we were in chapter 5. And one of the Finney guys, we got done with a verse, and he said, you know what? If you didn't know what Paul said in chapter 1 through 3, you would misunderstand this verse. And I said, yeah, you're exactly right. You're not going to understand how the Spirit works in chapters um, uh, 6, 7, and 8 if you don't know about chapters 4 and 5. And if you try to jump to chapter 12 to all the ethical instructions about how to behave, and you try to do that without having a handle on what God's... what Paul has already taught us in 1 through 11, you're going to crash and burn. We need to be willing to sit down and let God instruct us the way he's written and not be afraid of that. Um, just between, the, just between, after the first service, there was a lady that was in the first service she, that, uh, that she particularly likes uh, teaching and helping people learn the Word. And she said it's such a heartbreak to her how many Christians learn the gospel that Jesus died for my sins and I don't go to hell. And 30 years later, that's still all they know. But the Lord has a lot that He wants to teach us about how He's working in our lives. And we want to let Him do that. I'm going to take a third example here. This came up, this is going to come from Matthew 19. This came up recently when, uh, again, I was with actually with a group of Bible translators. It's with a group of Bible translators. And one of them was talking about things in the Bible that are just, they're just a puzzle and you just can't understand them. And the example he gave, and again, at the time, I thought it wasn't appropriate, but actually probably I was just a coward and backed out. But he gave us an example from Matthew 19. He said, you know, for example, Jesus said that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he said, that just doesn't even make sense. Because if you're divorced, it's not adultery. And uh, he's the kind of guy that, that uses laughter as punctuation. And he said, if a person is divorced... That it's not adultery. Uh, just don't go there. What he said was, what Jesus said doesn't make any sense, so just don't even look at it. Ignore it. That's essentially what he said. But I want to show you the mistake he made. If you're in Matthew 19, um, that statement comes at the end of a conversation and is not a long one. Just go back to 19 verse 1. Jesus when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him. It's important there. They're testing him. They're not looking for information. (laughs) They're on the attack here. They're testing Jesus, and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Uh, I suspect they knew what his answer was going to be, but it doesn't matter for the story. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So what did he say? Well, they were pretty clear about what Jesus was saying because in verse 7 it said, They said to Jesus, well, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They clearly understood that Jesus was pretty much prohibiting divorce. Uh, And so Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted, they had said commanded, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it's not been this way. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So when we read the whole context, it becomes clear that Jesus is telling these guys, you have these categories and ideas in your head, and I'm telling you they're wrong. It's not like that. Now, when my friend that I've known for years, when he said what he did, well, If they're divorced, it's not adultery. What did Jesus just say? What he's saying is, I agree with the Pharisees, and I think Jesus is wrong. And not only is he wrong, but it doesn't even make any sense. Now, this is a point where, as Keith would say, I need to say time out. We need to push the pause button. And address something here. Uh, As I was talking to my wife about doing this message, and clearly my point is encouraging people to read the Bible in context and not jump around and pick little pieces. All these examples, obviously that's the overriding point. Let's let God tell us what he wants to tell us the way he wants to tell us. I told her what I was going to do, and I I mentioned this particular example because we've talked about this before, and, and Carrie gave me one of these. I thought, oh, something, something. And uh, Carrie has a much bigger heart than I do. You know, I'm kind of academic. Anyway, Carrie said, uh, David, you're wanting to make a point here, and you're using this for an illustration. But she said, we need to think here. There are a lot of divorced people in our fellowship. And when you use that as an illustration, as soon as you say divorce, you're going to lose people because that's where they're going to be. And they're going to lose track of what you're trying to, the point you're trying to make when you're not really teaching about divorce. And I, and she was right. And I thought a lot about that. And so over the last few days, I took this out and I put it back in. And I took it out and put it back in. But I ended up with it in there, but I rearranged it. I did have it in a different place, but I decided to put it at the end. 
because it really comes back to making a really big point that I want to make here. And that is that um, it's certainly true in divorce. Well, change more. I got a comment after the first service, and so I'm cutting and pasting here. That I want to make the point here that the whole issue of divorce uh, is a lot bigger than this one verse. Uh, Jesus is making a pretty blanket statement that divorce is prohibited, but just like the previous thing from 1 Corinthians, there is more teaching in the Bible than just this verse. The things that God wants us to know about marriage and divorce uh, and how to deal with that as believers is another thing that won't fit on a bumper sticker. And so there's more to it than that about when God does or does not uh, condone remarriage and things. And so I'm not, um, um, I'm not pursuing that this morning. That's another thing that we could spend a lot of time on. But the underlying point that I do want to make is still valid, and it's what I want to drive home, that we don't miss how significant a thing is that this friend of mine did when he said what he did. Is in that underlying statement, when he... When he didn't read the context, he just read the one verse and he said, well, if they're divorced then it's not, uh, and they remarry, then it's not adultery. What is he doing? What he's doing is he's saying, my definition of what's right and wrong in my categories of marriage and divorce, I think they're right. And if Jesus says something different, then I'm going to conclude that that doesn't make any sense. And when he said, that doesn't make any sense, ha, <laughs> don't even go there, he was saying, don't even look at the passage of what God said, because those are not my categories. When that's the point of the passage, that Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and saying, your categories are wrong. I'm telling you, it's different. He'd already taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he do on the Sermon on the Mount? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And this is what people in the kingdom are like and what they'll get. Now, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. Now, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. Now, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. What's he doing? Our thinking is all messed up because all of us are just so completely contaminated with the thinking of the world that's governed by Satan and his minions that we're completely confused about what's true and what's not. And God has sent his son to show us the truth. And that's going to involve finding out that some of the things that we think are wrong and to bow up and say, well, I don't make no sense. God made the sun. God made the moon. Are you going to tell the person that made the moon that he doesn't know what he's doing? But if we just drop in and read an individual verse, and then we interpret the words and the parts according to our system that's contaminated by the world's thinking, we're going to be confused. We're going to have to let God say, all right, sit down. This is going to take a few minutes. 
And you're going to have to let me build my case and explain it to you, but I'm going to make it clear to you. My absolute conviction is that God gave his word to us to be a light to our path. And he did not give it to us in order to confuse theology students. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't go to Papua New Guinea and translate it. But we've got to read it the way he gave it to us. Let him tell us a story if he wants to tell us a story. Let him say, sit down in school and let's work through this. It's going to take several pages, but stay with me because I'm going to help you. And the Holy Spirit will help us. And he's not doing that to rain on our parade. He's not doing that to try to ruin us. He's doing it to try to rescue us from being active participants in the rebellion against him. So that we can enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness, sitting at his feet in fellowship with each other. And that's what God wants us to get. But we can't get that if we just pick a verse here, pick a verse there, pick a verse here. I've gotten so frustrated in Papua New Guinea, working with the Papua New Guineans, because that's the way they approach the Bible. But to our shame, I have to say the reason they do that is that's the only thing they've ever seen missionaries do. They don't see missionaries handle the Bible in any other way. Let's let God talk to us the way he wants to talk to us. Let's let him define the categories. Let's not, my fear is that we're going to use, that a lot of Christians use the Bible like a dictionary. If I happen to be curious about something, I'll try to go find a verse that says something about it. The Lord did not intend for us to use his word that way. If he sent a letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said, read the letter. Read the letter. I've got things I want you to know. So I've got at the bottom of your handout what I say. Let's just sit down and say, God, what do you want to tell me? Not what do I want to know. What do you think I need to know? And you tell me I'm ready to listen. Let's not tell God... (laughs) Don't call us, we'll call you. You know, if if I'm curious about something, I'll call you. No, let's let God tell us what he wants to tell us. And you know what? There are a lot of things we might like to know that he doesn't. But there's a lot of things he wants us to know that we don't even know we need to know. We just need to read these things he's given us and let him tell us. Let's pray. Oh, our loving Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and your shepherding. We thank you that as a loving Father, you desire to train us, you desire to correct us, you desire to rescue us from ourselves, and that you are, in fact, accomplishing that through your Son and through the Holy Spirit and through the Word you've given us. Lord, we, we saw as Jesus, just before he was uh, betrayed, as he prayed for us to you, that over and over he said, Lord, it's the Word that you've given to us that you've used that to purify us, to sanctify us, to make us your children. Lord, help us to read your word responsibly. Help us to guide others in doing uh, the same. Lord, we rejoice in the work you're doing in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Specifically, thank you, Lord, for the completion of the Kondos, for my brother Bruno and Neo and the others in the Kondos language. Um, Thank you, too. There's so many of your people that are rejoicing to have the word. And that they look forward to using that to more clearly share you to their, um, to other people in their language group who do not know you. 
Lord, we thank you for the progress you've brought in the Finney translation. Lord, this is all your work, and we're depending on you for the completion. I can put a plan on paper, but it's up to you. The boats, the weather, finances, illness. Lord, it's all up to you, whether it comes to fruition. But, Lord, we ask that you do that. We ask that we can, we can reach that date, 2022, to have your, work, your New Testament printed in their language where more Finney folks can understand the truth you've given. Lord, you've promised that uh, through Abraham's seed that you would bless all the nations of the earth, Lord, and we see you doing that. We are participants of that now, seeing it happen in our own lives and among the Finney folks. Lord, we rejoice in that and praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.